Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Rebecca Ryan, the futurist and founder of Next Generation Consulting, with a mission to help individuals and organizations develop foresight to create brighter futures. Described as a human spark plug, Rebecca looks at the signals to establish the future trends of our economies, supporting people to prepare rather than predict. It's about using strategic foresight to prepare for the unknown and to discuss the road ahead and to tell us more to think like a futurist. Rebecca, welcome to Changemakers. It's wonderful to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Was that the right pitch? Did I get, did I, did I capture the day job? Because I've always, always thought with a futurist is that you want to get it right because you're going to be talking about what might come next. Are you kidding me? I'm going to follow up and see if I can cut and paste that into all my introductions. Oh, well, listen, it's a pleasure to speak to you. And not least because I know you do some incredible work, but should we, should we start? Let's define our terms, shall we? In terms of the day job, futurism, what is it for a person that's listening in terms of them getting to the grips with, with what you're actually doing? Yeah, there are a few hundred of us in the world who have the APF designation, which is given by the Association of professional futurists. And that just means we've met met the standard that we can speak about and write about foresight and represent the field in a professional way, that we have bona fides, that we have done client projects that are well thought of. Because one of the things that I think you run into when people call themselves a futurist is, you know, kind of like your guest on resiliency. It's like a word that has been used so much that what does it actually mean? So for professional futurists, we don't predict the future. There is not a singular future. We work with our clients to explore multiple plausible futures. Right. So you're not you're not in the business of sort of like commercial fortune telling. Right. <laughs> so but you are I suppose trying to shape a view about the world and and how you prepare for it. And I I really like this this quote from you where you said that about you know that it was about approaching the future with curiosity rather than fear. And I would imagine that's where you would come into this in terms of well actually how do you start to prepare yourself for that unknown world? I mean especially a world in which we're living in at the moment which which seems phenomenally unsure of itself. Yes, I mean if you just think about what the body does when it gets afraid, you develop tunnel vision, you often can't hear what's actually happening. You get very internalized with your world. And the foresight is the opposite of that. It's to remove that fear. It's to stand up straighter, view the horizon, not just what's absolutely ahead of you. And to do that with an openness and a curiosity that is fearless. So there's a, you know, I think people can kind of feel it in their body. When you feel afraid, you zero in. When you have curiosity, you open up. And to do great foresight, you need to have that open posture. Mm. And I mean, foresight is an interesting word, isn't it? Because it it sort of indicates all sorts of things like the gift of premonition, the gift of visioning, of of seeing things. Tell us a little bit about how you help open that that, that skill up for people in terms of thinking about the future, you know, where you can see a picture rather than see fog, I guess. Yeah. So it's always an exploration. You know, you have to have the mindset and sort of the posture of an explorer. Like, what are we going to learn here? And so we have a four phase process. We don't do the entire phase end to end with a client, but the first phase is sensing. Mm -hmm. So what's happening out there in our market, in the world, and what's happening inside our own 
system. So if we're working with an organization, for example, it's really important for us to look at things like how well are our people? Are we getting more robust technologically or less robust? Are, do we have more people on the bench as upcoming great talent or less? What's the status of our mission? And you know, a topic you know very well. Mm-hmm. The second phase is imagining. So we, after we've assessed all the sort of the navigational charts and sensing of what's happening out there, what's happening in here, then we start to imagine several different plausible futures. And we use the process that was started by my colleagues at the Institute for Alternative Futures, where we look at an expectable future in business that's often called the business as usual case. Then we look at one very challenging future and we look at two visionary futures. And after we've looked at multiple plausible futures, then we really take an x-ray and we say, what are the factors that we can control or influence across many of these futures that can help us be ready for anything? So so good good scenario planning, I guess, good thinking about that future. But but of course, you know, if 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 I suppose if our lifetimes have proven one thing, it's that the pace of change has accelerated massively. So presumably there are additional factors that you know, make that job, which you've, you know, you've, you've laid out, it sounds really well thought through, well articulated, but you know what, um, what, the, what do they say is that every plan is only as good as its first contact with the enemy, right? You know, right. So, 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 so when you come into contact with the future, how does all this sort of velocity and change and froth and fizz that we're living through challenge the plans that you're, you're creating w- with the people you work with? Yeah. So it really depends on the client. I was talking recently with Harry Black. He's the the city manager for Stockton, California. And I had heard, I didn't know if it was an old wives tale. So I just thought I'll ask him directly. I had heard that he designed 40 different scenarios for the city's future. Mm. Now, this is because in 2012, Stockton was the largest US city that had declared bankruptcy. And by 2021, truth in accounting had listed it the fourth best run city. So that's a nine year turnaround. And Harry was the guy who was at the wheel during that time. So when I sat down with him, I said, did you really have 40 scenarios? And he said, we have a lot. He didn't give me the number. But you know, for him, when your back is against the wall, doing really articulated and defined foresight and planning, it really matters. And so he said, I said, so what happened when COVID happened? And he said, well, we do have an economic doomsday scenario. And we immediately switched to that scenario. We started running the city, making the day-to-day decisions, thinking, making the assumption that we were headed to this economic doomsday. It ended up not happening, but he has a doomsday scenario within his sort of, you know, pantheon of how to navigate the city. Mm. And, and you know what I love the best, Michael? I said, so what software do you run this on thinking it was going to be some whatever Excel? Excel. Runs- <laughs> well, okay. Well, so that, well, that shows you that some of, some of the old ones are the best, but I suppose, you know, while you were speaking there, I was thinking about all those scenarios, it was reminding me of, you know, the sort of the line about how do you get six different opinions? Well, you know, sort of, you know, bring in seven economists, you know, it's sort of like, well, it actually might be the other way around. But anyway, it, it, but the point being is that for leaders is that quite often all of these scenarios, all of this data information makes the job even harder. And yet 
I suppose being a futurist is part of the unwritten job spec of any leader, whether it's, of, whether it's in a city or a corporation. How, what, how do they get it right in terms of knowing, well, you know, that scenario may happen, but it may not do. How, how do they sort of, how do they get it right more often than they get it wrong, I guess, in terms of your experience? Oh, it's this is a wonderful question because it really does all start with our software, our mental software. And your previous guest, Dr. Lorden, talked about at the London School of Economics, the first thing everybody learns is system one versus system two, fast mm. versus slow thinking. And we do the same thing with our clients. We we start with how to think like a futurist. We use the best kit that comes out of the CIA, comes out of you know all this great behavioral-based science research about how to be as less biased as possible, how to work with your own cognitive bias. And that's part of being fearless about the future. So we start there. And if we can help people widen their aperture, think more slowly about what's happening, we can get it right more often. In the beginning of my career, I never did that training. Mm -hmm. And I was always very dissatisfied with the work that we did for clients. So over the last decade, I've been introducing more of that. And I think we're getting better results. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad you, you raised the, the phrase bias, because I would imagine that you'll have some listeners to this interview that will be going, yeah, this is what I, you know, this is what I want to do more of. And then you'll have some, you'll have others that are saying, well, look, you know, it's impossible to, you know, the future is unknowable by its very nature. And so therefore, how, how can, you know, how can you do, I mean, you'll have the doubters. I'm sure you've come up and met them in your, in your career before, Rebecca. What's the message that you, you, you confront the doubters with in terms of thinking about strategic foresight as a method that actually might, might help them if they can get over the hurdle of actually having an open mind? Yeah. I think the question is, number one, do you have a vision of the future that's based on anything besides opinion? You know, because that sometimes that can take over strategy is what the CEO or what the C-suite wants to do in the future, irrespective of facts or mm. what's happening in the world around. The second piece is, are you ready for anything? Are you ready for anything? So for example, actuaries, you know, they calculate when we're going to die and how likely we are to get sick. They are futurists. That's what they do. Yeah. Oil and gas mm -hmm. industries, the World Bank, you know, the, the US military, the um, NATO, they all use foresight to help them plan amidst uncertainty. The point is not to get it right. Mm. The point is to be prepared for multiple futures. Yeah. And does that leave you feeling personally better about the world? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just more In, prepared for it. <laughs> yeah, a little less emotionally hooked by mm. whatever the, the topic du jour is or whatever today's terrible headline news is. You know, the ability to sort of neutrally look at what, what's happening over time. So I don't read the headlines every day. Uh, once a week or so, I sit down and I have a really thorough read of what's going on in the world. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm monitoring 123 different sources for signals and trends of the future that could be helpful to our clients. I'm not optimistic about the future. I, I, I'm not excuse me, I'm not pessimistic about the future. I am worried about some things. I'm worried about the future of democracy for those of us who live in democratic mm -hmm. societies. I'm, you know, I'm worried about the left and the right, the political tribalism. I think one of your previous guests talked about, you know, this notion of individualism is a myth, you know, that we know that countries that had a sense of collectivism fared better during the pandemic. So there are things that I have, I am deeply concerned about, but on the whole, I believe in people 
people. And when we're on our back leg, we do some of our best, mm. most creative and ingenious work. And, and it's interesting you use the word signals because Pippa Malgram, who was a White House advisor, I mean, she's written a whole book on, on signals. And you talked about, you know, the 120 or so sources that, that, that you go to really to, to, I suppose, find your signals. Tell us a little bit about where do you look? Where where, where does knowledge sit? Because I'm always I'm always constantly thinking about how do you spot the wood from the trees in these moments where you're just bombarded with information left, right, and center. Where do you get to get your insight and to get your perspective? Yeah, so I have a weekly signals meeting with six to eight, depending on who shows up, six to eight nerds around North America. These are people who really care about local government. I tend to work in the municipal domain. So so they are the nerd nodes. Nerd nodes, exactly. That's I'm going to change it to that. It's my it's my Scooby Gang. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So we meet once a week, and we all come with very different perspectives, and we share the signals of the future that we're seeing. And then once or once every month or so, I put out a signals newsletter to our community and ask them for the signals that they're noticing because signal hunting is something that is better done as a team. We can get two in our own echo chamber of of confirmation bias and available bias and so forth. So it's very important that we do that with with each other. But I hope that somebody listening to this is saying, well, what is a signal? Is it the same thing as a trend? And Mm. the way I think about it is a signal is like a raindrop that may turn into a rainstorm or a thunderstorm, but it may also dissipate and not become anything. So a signal is to a trend as a raindrop. Mm. Yeah, as a a signal is to a trend, as a raindrop is to a rainstorm. Mm. So by the time something becomes a trend, you know, think about raining. Everybody's got their windshield wiper blades going. Everyone's wearing their raincoat. Everyone has on their umbrella. When everyone is dealing with a trend, that's how you know it's in the mainstream. But signals are on the edges of society. Signals are often on the margins. They're things that just make you hop your head to the side like a yeah. you know, like a dog. <laughs> but but. I- I'll tell you, I, I'm I'm finding myself pretty convinced in this conversation that actually to be a futurist doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to predict the actual future. You've got to look at the future conditions because preparing yourself for the shape of things to come is not just about turning up on the day, is it? I mean, you know, it's about it's, it's that kind of fortune favors the prepared mind, I think, isn't it? Let, let's turn then to where you did make a prediction, though, because you, you wrote a book in 2013, Regeneration, which was a manifesto for America's future leaders. And I, I also thought the premise of that book was excellent. The, the idea of that, you know, that that America going through seasons, you know, the sort of, you know, the sort of the, the four seasons of, of, of weather. You were predicting the spring for being around 2020, which, as I remember, may not well have turned out to be the best of years from your, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe that was the, the spring you're after. But but in terms of, t- talk us through the book and talk us about, you know, getting to 2020 and then sort of reconsidering actually where America had found itself. Yeah, that's, thank you for, for mentioning this. So the, the premise behind regeneration was the seasonal aspect that every 20 years or so, America moves into a different season. And this wasn't a new idea. This is a book based on the book Generation 
Generations by Neil Howe and Bill Strauss, but Bill Strauss has passed away. Mm. And when, uh, you know, we're going through generational change as well. So Neil and Bill were sort of the gen one in the US about thinking about generations. And I think it's up to some of us to pick that up, you know, and continue to move that forward. So my fatal error in regeneration, which I've gone back and confessed to all my Kickstarter supporters, is that I thought that the, the first part of winter was in 2001 when the World Trade Centers were attacked on 9-11. And after hearing from Neil Howe, I now believe that winter actually started in 2009 during the Great Recession, that that is when we hit the, the, the you know, the beginning of winter. So that means that it will be closer to 2030 when we start to come into the spring. So we're still in the frozen tundra. Right. With, with quite a long time to go. With a while to go. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I mean, you said, I mean, I mean, I'm going to try and move us on to positive territory in a moment, but you did, you did say in, in also in, um, you know, that America would go through a process that would change how people spend, relate, collaborate, work, live. I mean, that has happened. I mean, possibly in a way that was unknowable through things like COVID and, you know, all the other sort of challenges that, that the world is facing. But tell us a little bit about that in terms of how you sort of use foresight to sort of come up with these predictions and then ultimately how you view what actually happened. So with respect to using foresight to come up with these predictions, and maybe it's confirmation bias. I mean, let's just lay it all out there. But it's a pretty compelling case that the boomers, the baby boomers in America, for example, really shaped, and some would say for too long, the political and economic and social context in this country. The Generation Xers who come behind them are a smaller generation. So just by sheer numbers, um, they will play a different role. And then you've got the millennials who are once again as big a generation as the baby boomers, but fundamentally different with respect to socioeconomic experience and so forth. So it makes sense to me, just from a predictive perspective, that as these generations snowball through their lives, they're going to have different you know, impacts on society. And I, I loved how Bella, one of your previous guests, talked about it, that when you're in the liminal space of becoming an emerging adult, so much of what's happening in society will shape you. So the mm. eco-anxiety, that our future generations are feeling now is something that will transform how we relate to extreme weather, as the right in America calls it, or climate, as the left in America exactly. calls it. Yeah. But but I suppose, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, climate, extreme weather, but there is also social and political extreme weather that we're we're living through. And of course, just as, I mean, you mentioned the generations. And of course, one of the reasons why the boomers were called the boomers, of course, they were the, the joyful post-war generation that didn't have any of the privations of, of the I mean, when you look at how generations are being shaped in this winter that we're we're living through, which may go on for a, a substantial part of their their professional lives, how does that how does that shape the attitude, the fortitude, the preparedness of a generation where actually you're not living in summer, you're living in the toughest season of all? Yeah. So let's just, I mean, you said we would eventually become a little more optimistic. So yeah. if I want to think of a visionary future, one of several plausible futures for how we come through this, in a visionary future, baby boomers become wise elders and mentors for future generations. And they start to do things like, you know, Jane Fonda. And, you know, we've got some real activist leaders in this country who are saying, listen, 20 somethings can't go and get arrested and do sit ins, but we baby boomers, we're 
we're retiring. We've got the time to do this. Bill McKibben in what he's doing with Second Act. He's like, we've got the time to do this. Mm. So that is the role of the boomers is to evolve and mature into becoming wise elders and frankly, giving up the microphone. Mm. You know, we it is time for different voices to be at the mic. We have a, you know, we have a, a gerontocracy running our country right now. The second thing then with Gen Xers is if we're thinking visionary, Gen Xers are bridge builders. They understand boomers because they came of age when all the boomers were in charge. But millennials are looking up to them as their parents, as their managers at work, as their leaders. So we've got to be the bridge between these two generations, almost like the translator between the two generations. And what Gen Xers are great at is they're pragmatic. If we could get Gen Xers' sense of irony to just shift a little bit into pragmatism, we'd be there. And then you've got the millennials, right, who they want to work for places that have meaning, not just making money. They are starting companies like Tom's Shoes and, you know, the the buy one, give one ethos. But they need the support from the other two generations and in some cases need some of the policy changes that would help enable better behavior. Mm. Uh, By the way, I think that is a brilliant summary of the personas of the generations. I mean, but I suppose in terms of handing over the mic, as you say, to new voices, I suppose what you've outlined there is the kind of the hope, which as we all know is not a strategy or certainly not the same as a strategy. How does the futurist come in on the back of that kind of optimistic take in terms of saying, well, actually, are the signals there that this is actually happening? Or is this just, you know, sort of manipulation and, you know, sort of clever optics and other sorts of ways of maintaining power hierarchies? I mean, is change afoot, do you think, Rebecca? There are definitely pockets of it but it's not what you read in social media feeds and they have their own problem. They're run by algorithms where enragement is engagement. So these algorithms are, you know, like out of control with regard to what they feed us. And of course the media has to keep up with social Mm. media. So I feel this is one of the reasons I don't dip into the newspaper every day because I'm trying to find solutions for clients. I'm trying to help them craft solutions, but I do think that it's happening. And I would just invite listeners to look in your own neighborhood Take your nose out of the newspaper and put it in your local neighborhood and ask what's new and good in our local neighborhood. And you Mm. will find a lot that is happening. A lot more than you probably think. I I agree with that very much. I mean, let's put another lens on this because we've talked about the generations, but I suppose also the sort of people that you work with, you know, you've worked with corporate leaders, you've seen the world from the vantage points of, of high level politics and economics, but also entrepreneurs as well, that you're you're working with small business leaders. In terms of how their worlds, which are, you know, very, very different worlds, I mean, certainly as they pertain to how we deal with things like risk and opportunity, what's it like hanging out in those very in those various ponds? You know, it's interesting because before I was working so closely in the public sector with municipal and local governments, I was helping companies become great places to work. So I had done some research a thousand years ago, it seems like, on, you know, how to increase trust and, you know, life work balance and a sense of membership and community at the workplace. And what's so interesting is that there are just some fundamentals that are critical. And so whether it's in the public sector or not, you know, first things first is, are we all seeing a shared perspective of the future? You maybe call it mission. We call it vision. But Mm. boy, when you give people a focal point 
it has this organic magic that can happen across the enterprise, across the city, across the organization, in that once people are clear on where it is we're going, they will self-edit mm. around what they need to do to get in alignment with it. And an example is we were working on a net zero carbon plan for a public utility. And as soon as we got crystal clear on the six words that were the vision, the CEO said, I have noticed that in our meetings, we are now when we're doing land use planning or building planning, we're talking about 2050 and these six words, and they are just organically aligning their plans around it. And feeling, I guess, empowered to do something about it. Because, you know, it strikes me that, you know, what, what you've got in a lot of organizations is a sense that the glass is half empty. And I suppose how you flip that to the glass is half full is giving people things to believe in, missions to believe in, visions to believe in, you know, sort of, and, and I, I very much get that. And, you know, it, it brings me on to, to your to your lockdown list where, you know, you said you're inspired by anyone who's overcome obstacles and odds. The human spirit and people's ingenuity is awe-inspiring. I suppose that's a little example we've just heard there in terms of some of your day-to-day work. But tell us about what, what do you want listeners to, to take from a quote like that in terms of the, the potential, I suppose, that's there to realize? One of the benefits of COVID, the COVID era, was we had a lot of time to have a good think. And in America, where we invented workaholism, work is no longer the number one priority for people. This is a fundamental reshuffling of the deck of priorities where people have had a good long think about how they want to spend their time. So for listeners... I would just ask you, you know, you are living right now in your great-grandparents' future. Mm. And they made choices and our electeds made policy decisions that you may be benefiting from. You are now creating... A wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. you. Um, we all are now creating a future that our kids are going to live in. Mm. So what what do you want that to be? How do you want to spend your time? Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about decisions that your 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 grandparents great grandparents made you know migration decisions all sorts of things that get you to where you are today you, you you've talked about your your new normal as, as as calm and clear and i i would you know have having you know this is the first time you and i've spoken and calm and clear feels really really good descriptors for you rebecca in terms of actually you know how you come across is that is that a are you born with that or is it a habit? Because a lot of people that are sat there feeling, you know, frustrated and irate and, you know, sort of lacking clarity. So how do I get a bit of that? Yeah, it's, well, thousands of dollars of therapy. <laughs> and I have a very intensive Zen practice. And when you have to sit still on a cushion for 45 minutes, when your knees are blowing up and you think you're never going to walk again, and you just want to kill the person who's going to ring the bell, you learn how to be calm in the center of just chaos. So I think that's the other thing. Mm. Last question. We're almost out of time, Rebecca. So you, you gave us two two great tips and pieces of advice. I don't, I don't know if you if you remember those. We'd like me to read them out, but I'll, I'll just I'll, just do the next right thing and enjoy your life. Tell us a little bit more about them. Yeah. So I can easily become overwhelmed. It's I don't know. I have a short fuse on like when I've got too many client projects or too many calls or too much on my schedule, I get overwhelmed, and so I have to get you know have a little word with myself and take 
take a deep breath and say, what is just the one next right action I can take? And sometimes it's petting my cat. It's not yeah. anything that's productive at all. But the other thing is um, I went through a period in my life where within six weeks, my marriage ended and my brother died. Mm. And so two people who I thought were just going to be Rocks. in my life for yeah. forever. Yeah. It just got washed away. And I was having dinner with some friends and I was, I found myself making excuses for some decisions I was making. Like I was going to go to China and I was doing these things that were really to feed my soul. And I kind of had a little guilt about that because these terrible things had happened to me. And my friend Lynn Sullivan said, Rebecca, enjoy your life. Uh, and it was transformational. And of course, it, easy words to say, but of course, it, it, it's a, it's things that, you know, the more I get into into life, I understand how, how difficult it is for all of us often to do in terms of the sort of like, you know, the sort of the, the way to actually realize that I was I, I was I was at a, an event the other day and there was a motto on, on the wall and it was a, a mulberry tree and it was um and the motto showed the branches and, and it said that, you know, the fruit is short lived, but the tree lives long. And I and, and so what it was, was this kind of thing about, you know, to your point about the about the about the great grandparents parents was that you know we we come and go but of course that story endures through the generations and I absolutely loved it that's so beautiful I'm writing it down right now Michael <laughs> <laughs> we probably we've probably ended the interview now. <laughs> so, listen, what I will also say Rebecca what a great pleasure to to meet you I will commend listeners to your uh, to your soundtrack list as well because not least and I think you and I have got very similar musical taste and if not life taste Rebecca thanks so much for joining me on Change Makers thank you Michael Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 